Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Canadian drug manufacturer Medicago is starting its late-stage study of its experimental COVID-19 vaccine that's combined with a booster from GSK. Now, Brian Ward is Medicago's medical officer. He joined us on the program to talk about this. According to the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, Ontario's long-term care homes are losing staff to places like Amazon and airports in the film industry. In a sector that's already having a staffing crisis, what's being done to fix it? And Canada has asked the U.S. for help in procuring COVID-19 vaccine doses. Will some of those American vaccines make their way across the border? Well, they're talking about it, and so are we. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Obviously, a vaccine is on everybody's mind, and there, we've got a couple of different angles that we want to cover on this today. Uh, possibility of maybe some American vaccines coming up the, across the border for Canadians. That would be good news. Uh, we'll give you the lowdown on what's happening there. But even better news about what's happening here with uh, the Canadian manufacturer of the vaccine. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Canadian drug developer Medicago has uh, said that uh, they are starting a late-stage study of its experimental COVID-19 vaccine combined with a booster from GlaxoSmithKline. Uh, here to talk about it is uh, Brian Moore. Brian is the medical officer with Medicago. Uh, Brian, first and thanks uh, for being with us on the program today. This is a uh, pretty big news for this country. Uh, well, it's it's great news, I think. It uh, is. And we certainly hope the vaccine works as well as we hope it can. Yeah, well, there's a lot to talk about here because of what the work that you guys have been doing on this. Now, our, our listeners may recall that it was, I guess, about a year ago that uh, we talked about, you know, let's talk about getting vaccines developed here in this country and it was going to be a monumental task of course because of where we were uh but you guys stepped up you formed a partnership the federal government put some uh, some money into this uh and uh, just as we've talked about the rapid development of, uh, of some of the other vaccines uh the work that you guys at medicago have done here is truly remarkable in a relatively short period of time well it certainly feels that way we're all pretty <laughs> tired <laughs> we're, a small, we're a small company 450 employees um and that you know, we've we uh, we're not you know right at the front of the wave of the first wave of vaccines, but we're also not a company with eighty thousand employees. Well, let's talk a little bit about what what you guys have done in this past year. Now, as I mentioned, uh, you mentioned that you're going into a late stage study right now, uh, including thirty thousand participants, uh, including Canadians, by the way. Uh, and you know, I'm just trying to juxtapose what you guys are doing brian with uh, some of the stories we've heard from some of the other manufacturers and some of the shortcomings uh, well you know they didn't really do much testing on the plus 65 and 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 things of this nature you you're covering most demographics with the studies you're doing well we're really trying to do that um the phase two study that is uh, now uh, mostly enrolled uh, looked at uh, healthy adults uh, over the age of 18 so including the elderly over the age of 65 as well as people with um, uh, medical conditions that put them at higher risk for COVID-19. We will, uh, and so that, that study was looking at safety and how well the immune uh, uh, system responded. In the efficacy study, we will do the same, uh, we, we will look to enroll the same type of participants. But obviously in Canada, the U.S., the U.K., where we're going to be doing the study, at least in part, uh, we won't be able to recruit the very old or the very sick anymore. And so we will be extending the study. It's now a global study uh, where we're uh, carrying it out in 10 countries, uh, several of which don't have uh, early access to vaccines. And so most of the older individuals and those with medical conditions will come from those other countries. The timeline that we were told, and, and this wasn't from you guys, obviously, you were busy doing your thing, but from from other folks in, in the field, uh, in, infectious disease specialists and such, said, said this is a great announcement. I'm going back a year now when, when the federal government talked about the partnership they wanted to form with you guys at Medicago. Uh, but they said it's probably going to be early 2022 before we see anything here. Uh, how did you accelerate the timeline as, as much as you have? Uh, well, that's what I said. We're a little bit tired. <laughs> <laughs> I think that a great deal of the credit needs to go to the regulators, Canadian, the FDA, and other countries, where we, we really have seen a remarkable collaboration between companies and regulators to do everything right, to be complete and thorough, but just not take the normal uh, time to do it. Everybody has moved very quickly. So instead of having a turning or turnaround for comments, questions, and answers of weeks to months, uh, we have had turnarounds in days to weeks. 
I want to talk a little bit about, I don't want to get too deeply into the weeds about, uh, about how this is, is being done, uh, but you're doing things a little bit differently, as I understand it. Metacoggle vaccine uh, is using a technology uh, with virus-like particles that mimics the structure of the coronavirus. Uh, explain to us how that's going to work. Uh, yeah, well, it, uh, some of the most successful vaccines that are in use currently um, are uh, small virus-like particles. So the mm-hmm. hepatitis B vaccine or the human papillomavirus vaccine, but they're not made in plants. Um, and so our, our platform uh, basically tricks the plant into producing a protein that we want it to, in this case, the outer pr- protein of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And uh, what the plant cells do is they actually end up making these uh, tiny little virus-like particles that look for all the world like the virus. Um, they're enveloped. They have um, spike trimers sticking off their surface, just like the wild-type virus does. Um, and so when we inject those into the human body, the immune system reacts much as it would if it were seeing a real virus. Ah. And so the immune response is actually really pretty strong. Then we add the adjuvant that we have from our partner, GSK, which uh, stimulates an even stronger immune response. Um, and the antibodies and the cellular immunity that we get are um, uh, uh, really, uh, well, uh, they're very consistent. So virtually everybody who gets our vaccine makes a response, and those responses are very high. Well, here's the number, because we were talking about efficacy with some of the other vaccines, uh, and, and just want our listeners to know, but in phase one of your clinical trials, 100% of the people that receive the COVID-19 vaccine develop significant antibody responses with no severe adverse effects. That's uh, that, that had to be a banner day. I bet there were some high fives going around when that uh, study was, was published. We were certainly smiling, <laughs> and, and the phase two data are very consistent. Um, across the age range and in, in individuals who have um, medical conditions as well. So um, th- that phase one study was with a relatively small number, so 20 people per group. But the phase two study um, has you know, uh, just about 300 healthy adults and elderly and a smaller number of those with medical conditions. So we are increasingly optimistic that the responses will be as consistent and as good uh, across the whole population. Uh, we should also mention, too, uh, as far as storage and things of that nature are concerned, because there's concern about the Pfizer vaccine and some others, uh, this can be stored at normal uh, refrigerator temperatures, right? Yeah, that's right. It's stable at, at refrigerator temperatures, so 2 to 8 degrees. So this is a, a vaccine that could be stored at a pharmacy, for instance, uh, they, since they have refrigerators there. I mean, just keep it chilly like that and go get your shot. We're not there yet with pharmacists. Well, I guess we are on a, on a trial basis. But, but this is, this is a, a very accessible vaccine and, and something that uh, is traveled well, I guess, obviously, because of the fact that if it's refrigerated, it's going to stay well. Well, that, that's certainly where we're obviously running stability tests on it, even as we're starting to produce it for an eventual rollout of the vaccine if our phase three study is successful. Um, and, and we will know uh, more about how, how stable it is over time. But, re- but right now, it seems to be quite stable for months at um, two to eight degrees. Now, you talked about the process, and, and you're right. I think, you know, Health Canada and, and a number of agencies, the FTC in the States, are, are going as quickly as they can to try to do these without missing any of the steps, of course. And, and we want to make sure that, that and that's what you and all the other companies are doing, is to make sure that this is going to be safe and effective. Uh, but what does this do to your timeline now? Uh, you, you've got a, this study that you're just about to begin now, uh, a worldwide study. That's going to take some time. Is, is there an anticipation that this could be ready for market sometime this year? Oh, we're, we're actually uh, far more optimistic than that. Um, we, we hope to have all of our subjects enrolled, so 30,000 subjects in the 10 countries, um, by the end of April, early May. And, and because so much uh, um, uh, COVID-19 is still moving around in the countries where we are uh, conducting the study, we're very hopeful that we will have collected the 160 cases that we need, identified those cases, um, uh, you know, by the end of May or early June. Um, once we have uh, identified those cases, we, and we hope they're all in the placebo arm, um, we are able to then unmask the study and uh, figure out how well the vaccine worked. 
obviously we, we will be confronting um, uh, a, a, a different situation in each country where the different populations might have access to different vaccines mm-hmm. and also the new variants. Right? We're yeah. doing part of our study in Latin America um, and the new variants are already here in North America, the UK and the US. Yeah, it's it's kind of a race against time here, isn't it? We we hear more news about the variants every day, especially here in Ontario. Uh, the numbers seem to be climbing on a pretty consistent basis, and and we're looking uh, for companies like yours, obviously at Medicago, uh, to to be able to help out with this. And uh, hopefully, you know, we're you guys are going to win that race. But it sounds as if you're way ahead of schedule right now. So, uh, but there still has to be after the studies and just after the process that you just explained here, though, Brian. Uh, when when does Health Canada get their hands on it to do their evaluation and give it a thumbs up? Well, the regulators have actually accepted um, uh, a, a fast track approach. Uh-huh. So we show them our data as we collect it, um, and and so we have official fast track designation in the FDA in the United States. That will definitely shorten the time. So if if we are um, you know on on our schedule of uh, uh, having our 160 cases sometime in June, we actually would be hopeful that we would be able to have authorization um, for emergency use um, late July, uh, perhaps, or, or, or latest um, early August. That's incredible. That's fabulous news. As long as, and we have to just remind our listeners, as long as everything goes according to plan uh, through this process. But it seems to be off to a great start so far. What, what about production, though, Brian? There's always a concern, and we saw this with some of the other manufacturers too. You know, when they, aha, we got all the approval, but uh, they had trouble getting it off the line and getting it to the to, to the people that needed it and getting the you know the shots in arms. Uh, you just mentioned, of course, that uh, this is a, a great country a co- company that you're working with with Medicago, uh, but it's a small company. Uh, what kind of a challenge does that present to you? Well, th- this has certainly been a challenge from start to finish, but we have production facilities in Quebec right. as well as in North Carolina, and we are already producing the candidate vaccine at risk um, in both of those sites. Um, we're also, um, like other companies, we are evaluating how well our vaccine might do against the variants. Um, so we, we are hopeful because we have such high antibody titers that the, the vaccine as it currently exists will have good activity against at least some of the variants, like the UK variant. Uh, but we are testing whether it will also work, at least in a test tube, against the South African and the Brazilian variants that have emerged. Mm-hmm. However, we are also making uh, the next generation of virus-like particle vaccine in plants um, uh, targeting the South African strain uh, because it is, uh, we think, relatively likely that there will need to be boosters um, for these variants to keep everything at bay over the next year or two. Yeah, it's kind of looking that way, isn't it? I, but we should mention, by the way, uh, that you require a second shot, just like most of the other vaccines do, like four or five weeks after the fact, I suppose. But it's it's kind of looking like this may actually be an annual thing, like our flu shots, too, just to kind of keep this thing away from us, uh, which means production is not just ramping up for the short term. But this this is you, you guys are going to play the long game here, aren't you? We are. And, and, and in fact, um, the timing for the long game, uh, is is probably quite good for us in that we have a global facility that's being constructed in in Quebec City right now mm-hmm. that once it's completed in 2023, uh, early 2024, we will be able to produce uh, up to a billion doses of a pandemic vaccine within a 12-month period in Canada. Uh, that's that's great news I, because you've heard the hue and cry uh, from well political leaders and and I think people in the community as well uh, that we need to ramp this up and I think you know we not just Canada but a lot of countries kind of dropped the ball when it came to to pharmaceuticals and vaccine production over the years and we kind of got caught off guard here uh, we're playing catch up but uh, boy this uh, puts us a, a giant step forward from where we were even six months ago do you see the viability of of, of a Canadian industry like this Brian like what you guys are doing at Medicago expanding and becoming fruitful in the long term? Well, I, I, I certainly hope so, not just for us, but also for some of the other uh, uh, vaccines. There, there are other Canadian vaccines um, mm-hmm. in the pipeline. Uh, there are certainly other Canadian therapeutics. I, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not a huge fan of sort of the vaccine nationalism that some people are talking about. 
but I, I do think that this experience has has reinforced the need to establish you know strong binding international agreements to make sure that everybody has access to uh, therapeutics and vaccines, especially in the case of a pandemic. Because if, if we just vaccinate in the resource-rich countries, we, we will see this virus coming back uh, heavily mutated from countries that don't have the same resources. Yeah, that's a strong message that has been consistent uh, from our medical professionals uh, right through this. Uh, if we don't vaccinate everybody, it's always going to be with us in some shape or form. Uh, but this is great news. And I wanted to spend some time with our listeners talking with uh, with you about this today. Uh, continued good luck with with you, Brian, and everybody else at uh, Medicago. Uh, and I, I know we'll be talking again as we go down the road on this, but this is fabulous news and uh, continued success with what's going on here. And uh, Gee, I'm ready to roll my sleeve up, uh, but I'll, I'll have to wait until July, I suppose, for something like that. But uh, we'll talk again soon. Well, thanks very much for the invitation. Brian Ward is the medical officer with Medicago, and uh, great news that they're actually into their final stages of their studies. Uh, 100% effective, the studies they've done so far. That's incredible. And uh, the production, of course, is going to be happening. As he said, there's a plate in South Carolina, but the one in Quebec, of course, that uh, the government uh, put a lot of money into is uh, is going to be a main driving factor in, in the rejuvenation, I guess, of uh, the vaccine industry, and uh, especially here in Canada. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We have been talking at great length about long-term care in this uh, province uh, long before the pandemic, as a matter of fact, because there's an awful lot going wrong with the province uh, and their approach to long-term care. And uh, it was exacerbated by the pandemic, and tragically so, because of the number of people that lost their lives and got very, very sick. Uh, so the uh, pressure has been on the Ford government uh, to do something constructive to try to do this. I know they had an independent panel, and they're getting advice about all this stuff. And, well, there was some optimism uh, a couple of weeks ago. I guess it was actually back in February when uh, the premier made this Announcement. Nothing is more important than the health of our long-term care residents. We have a duty to protect them, and we made a promise to do whatever it takes to improve their conditions and ensure they receive the highest quality care. Part of that commitment is to provide them with the average of four hours of care per day. Today, we're taking another step forward delivering on that commitment. And I am pleased to announce that we're investing $115 million to train 8,200 new personal support workers in our long-term care and home and community care sectors. This is part of our government's long-term care staffing strategy, one of the largest PSW recruitment and training drives ever in this country's history. Well, on the surface, that sounds very encouraging uh, because the, the money was a major factor as we talked to some of the folks in the industry. But is it enough? Uh, not so much. Uh, I want to bring Donna Duncan into the conversation. Donna is the CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association. Uh, Donna, great to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. I'm glad to be back, Bill. Thank you. Let's talk about this. I, I remember, you know, in February thinking, well, they seem to be getting this right. We talked to some of the folks at Mohawk College, which is one of the uh, the colleges that's actually going to be helping to train, uh, hopefully, new people into long-term care. Uh, but this does not come anywhere near solving the problems, especially when it comes to staffing. Uh, you've got people leaving the industry as opposed to coming in. How's, how's that happening? Yeah, well, you know, our, our, our existing workforce uh, was in critical shape before this began. We know that. We, had a, we were in crisis before the pandemic started, and we were understaffed. In many cases, the homes were reliant uh, just on agency staff. And, uh, you know, we're a, it's a year ago on the 20th that we had our first outbreaks in long-term care, and then our first losses followed that. And our, our staff are exhausted. Those those who have been in the sector who stayed uh, are completely diminished. Their, their morale, their mental health, uh, they're, they're still frightened uh, and they're tired. Uh, we know that the staff in long-term care are older than they are in other parts of the health sector. Uh, the majority of our employees are, are female. They're their family caregivers. So they became homeschoolers in this uh, they look after their parents, their their children, their other members of their families, and uh, that's where they're putting their energy. And there are new opportunities that are emerging outside of long-term care that, uh, quite honestly, are 
are far more attractive than working in these old homes, uh, understaffed, uh, with very, very difficult, hard work. And it's not because they don't care. It's just that they just don't have the energy anymore. And uh, so we need to rebuild this workforce very quickly. The conundrum here is, is caused by the fact that uh, there's there's other sectors, of course, of, of the workforce uh, that are needing the kinds of people that actually you should be having and do have in your facilities. Uh, you know, he- regulated health professionals, infection prevention specialists, and the, the things of this nature. But some of these other companies are basically coming along and saying, hey, we'll pay you more. Come over here. Uh, it's not as burdensome. You don't have all the hassles that you're going to have where you are right now. We know you're tired. We know you're frustrated. And they're going. Uh, I, you know, I, I can understand to a point, uh, but we've got to do something about that because there's a drain going on right now. It's, it's, it's like you, you, you know. Hopefully, the provincial government program is going to work here, Donna. So you've got people coming in the door one side, but they're going out the door in the back. Yeah, absolutely. They're, we're seeing, uh, you know, one one of our members is telling us that they've lost. Uh, uh, some of their regulated staff and infection prevention and control folks to film and television where they were offered a car. Um, <laughs> you, you know, it's, we, you know, there are different incentives in, in other parts of, uh, of industry and in different industries right now. And that's a real, real risk for us. We really are optimistic about this, uh, accelerated PSW program. Uh, we are hearing from our college partners that, the numbers are, are actually trending well in that the majority of the programs are, are oversubscribed. Uh, we need to make sure, though, that we have the capacity in the homes to support those student placements when they come in. And we're mm-hmm. really pleased that they're paid placements for the PSW. So the government's paying for the tuition and they're going to pay for your, 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 your clinical placements. Um, but we also have more work to do on nurses. Uh, other allied health professionals, in, including dietary, we, we also uh, know that we need to have full-time uh, infection prevention control specialists in, in our homes as well. So it's not just PSWs. We've got to look at these other pieces. And then we also have to look at long-term care in the context of the, of the larger healthcare care system, uh, because we know the population over 80 is uh, going to double in the next 13 years, and that's going to put huge pressure to on all parts of the system, just at the time that a lot of our specialists, our nurses and our doctors uh, and others are, are going to be retiring, and we're going to have to look after them. So uh, we're, we're at a critical moment, uh, and we're going to, it's a moment of disruption, uh, but it's also a moment of opportunity. And we're going to uh, have to look at more uh, earn-as-you-learn programs uh, in our long-term care homes and build these incentives and, and support our homes so that people, and rebuild our homes, so people actually want not only to get care in them and to live in them, but they want to work in them too. And so we have to recognize that the acceleration of the, the redevelopment program is as important to stabilizing our workforce as these um, education opportunities are. Well, and there's so many different things there that you've just mentioned that, that we need to, to, you know, roll back and talk a little bit about here, including, for instance, the very facilities themselves. Uh, you know, I've, I've heard some of the LTC workers that, that, that I've talked to, they, they want to speak off the record, of course. Uh, but the conditions are deplorable in some of these situations. They're old, old buildings. Uh, you know, the HVAC systems aren't very good. I mean, there's no air conditioning in some of these places. And in the July and August, it's almost unbearable. Uh, and, and, of course, there's the staffing levels, too. So, I mean, the industry has to step up here. And, and, yeah, I know there's always going to be a debatable private versus public sector owners. But the fact is, is we do have to do something about retrofitting some of these buildings and make them more livable. That, that's, that's a key element to this. Yeah, re- rebuilding these, rebuilding it, sh- it should be the number one priority, but also mm-hmm. retrofitting in the interim. It takes three to four years to rebuild a, and build a new long-term care home. And we know that these old homes that were built to 1972 standards in many cases, there's a lot of variability, but a lot of them, you know, social distancing is six feet or two meters. In many cases, there's three feet between a bed or in a hallway is not six feet wide and you have shared washrooms. So we know that the government has, uh, this this government in particular has made enormous progress on capital for the first time in 21 years. We, we do have announcements and a commitment uh, of $1.75 billion. Uh, but there's still, uh, even if we, once we get those homes built and, and those projects started their planning uh, last year, uh, there's still 24,000 of these 
um, of beds in these B and C homes that we need to 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 get to. And in many cases, they're small smaller homes in smaller communities across the province. And uh, so we we know we've got to act and we've got to move quickly to to do these uh, rebuilds. And that's going to include not just the funding, but but also because we do need uh, and so many of our smaller homes do need some support in those retrofits. Uh, but uh, we also need to create processes to clear out all the weeds in the process and the bureaucracy just to, to move projects forward. And that's going to require working together with, uh, with the, uh, the provincial government, but also with the municipal government, because, uh, uh, you know, that's where a lot of the process uh, barriers are. Well, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the two facilities in the Hamilton area here, both run by the city, as a matter of fact, uh, have gone through the retrofit situation, and it's it's not cheap, but it's necessary. That that's got to be the message that governments have to understand. Yes, and and our our government has been uh, putting out some new guidelines on uh, with regard to ventilation and HVAC, but we have to recognize too that a lot of these old homes, uh, they, they, they're they're not built to to carry the kind of electrical load that that some of the new new uh, cooling systems are going to require. So, what are the alternatives? Uh, what how are we going to look at different capacities so that are there different cooling environments where we may have to support, uh, work with our hospitals and other healthcare systems to find some alternatives to make sure that people are kept safe and comfortable. And that's our, our not only our residents, but our staff and visitors. What about the program itself? We, we had a discussion with our friends at Mohawk College last week, and they're one of the colleges, of course, that's going to be uh, partaking in, in this, uh, this long-term care training that's going on, and they're very excited about it. And the, the president of Mohawk College, Ron McCurley, was telling me there's been a huge uptake on this already, and that's good news. But is there a concern now, Donna, based on, on the, the situation you just described, where basically some of your trained staff are, are being lured away by other companies uh, because of their expertise, uh, that somebody could go through this program qualify and then uh, take a job someplace else you know that's a great question and that and that's one thing that we've spoken to the government about uh in the fall they brought in uh, the government introduced uh, some other initiatives with with incentives for nurses and psws who had left the sector to come back in to work in long-term care and if they stayed for a uh, six months or a year, then they'd get a, a benefit of an incentive payment. Uh, we've asked whether uh, we can have that type of program for this in terms of how some of the payment incentives uh, work in this program so that we we don't have that flow through and that we do keep people in the sector. Now, now what I would say is by building out this type of a program with, with more robust placements, um, and we believe we need to support uh, paid preceptorships in the homes. Because if we can do that, then create a culture and a learning environment and now much stronger relationships with our community college, that, that culture of learning uh, lends itself well to uh, recruitment and retention in our homes. Uh, we, we actually had a, a session with our members yesterday with some of our uh, long-term care homes with living classrooms, in, including in, in the Hamilton area. Schlegel Villages, in partnership with Mohawk, have a really great program that is really uh, bringing people into the sector and keeping keeping them there, notwithstanding some of the, the structural issues we may have in our homes. Um, it, it's creating a real culture shift, and uh, in, in my view, that's that's really exciting, and we've got to we've got to have more of that. Yeah, and I'm not suggesting anybody's you know doing this untoward. I mean, it, but you know, once you graduate and once you're qualified, uh, somebody may come knocking. I mean, as you say, all these other companies now are understanding that they need that kind of help now uh, because of the virus and and their work environment. So, uh, you know, I remember they did this a few years ago with because uh, with, there was a family doctor shortage, and they actually offered incentives for doctors to go to small towns or to go to northern Ontario. But the commitment was you have to stay there for X number of years. Uh, you can't just take the money and then. Okay, a year later, move back to Toronto or Hamilton or something. I, I don't know if that's what they need to do here, but something of that ilk, uh, just to make sure that there's going to be a commitment on the other side here, because that's that's one of the elements here is retaining the staff once you get them. Absolutely, absolutely. And we've seen those programs as well with nurses in the north and in underserved communities. Yeah. You know, we have we have communities across the province where there are no nurses either, no doctors, no nurses. And uh, that's one of the things our, our members have, have struggled, really struggled with, in, especially in the rural and northern communities. So, uh, you know, if we're going to invest in this, 
with the purpose of this being to stabilize our long-term care and home and community care sector, let's make sure that that's what we actually do uh, and make sure that the program meets that, that objective. And what are the pieces that are going to, like, what are, what are some of those incentives that we're going to have to put in place or requirements uh, around how this program is going to work? Well, and there's two elements to that, with, whether it's in long-term care or any other uh, employment capacity, I suppose. Uh, one is salary, of course. Uh, you know, you want to make sure that you're comfortable and that you can pay the bills and, and, and maybe, you know, make a car payment if that's what you need to do. But the other is working conditions. I mean, I, you know, a lot of the people that have left that I've talked to uh, in the last year simply said I, I was just intolerable working there. And, and that goes to staffing. It goes to the building itself, certainly, to a certain extent. Uh, you know, they really have to step up their game, and the province has to be a partner in this to, to make sure that there are standards that are ju- not just there but that are being enforced and uh, th- that there's compliance with these sorts of things because that they seem to have fallen off with that sort of thing and boy once that starts it's very difficult to kind of move that uh, back into where it should be our, our view is that you know absolutely we all have to be partners in this and we have to make sure that we're actually building a, a care and support model around the needs of the people we serve uh, these are not the people who are in long-term care when my grandmother was in long-term care in the 1980s these are people who have very complex health issues that and, and very heavy work the majority of our, our the people who live in our our homes uh, re- require support uh, in feeding they're not mobile they have uh, some form of dementia it's it's a very complex population and, and we need to build a, a model around that but we also have to look at Quite honestly, you know, licensing and, and inspections are really, really important. But let's look at our tone and approach. So instead of having a licensing inspector come in and go through a list of things and say either you passed or you failed, and and th- and that's it. It's that binary. You pass or you fail. Not here's an issue we've identified. Correct. Let's correct it. And then let's monitor that correction to make sure that you're on a path to better. So that it's about quality improvement and oversight and accountability, as opposed to a, a scorecard where you pass or fail. If you read inspection reports, it's failed, failed, failed. We support our kids in school for success. We need to, we, we need to support our long-term care homes and the people who work in them for success. I think we owe that to uh, the the employees but we most of all owe that success to the people who live in the homes so let's let's rethink that so it is about quality improvement but also let's look at how are we measuring quality outcomes from a clinical care perspective uh, and then how are we looking at those other pieces that are probably more aligned with public health and consumer uh, issues so your menus <laughs> and things like that and your quality of your food that's one piece, but then we really do need to look about what the model of care is and uh, really rethink uh, how we build out that continuum of how we support our aging population. And who, who, who are those people who actually, where we need to have close relationships with the hospitals to support the care needs of our residents at one end? And, and then what are some of those other partnerships we need around mental health uh, we know that the mental health of our staff is, is horrific right now, but also of our residents and our family members. Uh, and then we, we now have new relationships with emergency services that we never really had before with our pharmacies. Um, these new partnerships, I think, can really stabilize our homes and support us more for success. But but let's not you know conflate housing with care um, because these are places where we, we have to do both. And uh, I think that tone and approach to change that culture is going to be really important if we're going to attract and retain people in our homes, but also be better able to meet the care needs of our residents. Donna, I've got about a minute left here, but i got to ask you, I mean, uh, since we've talked, I mean, the vaccine program has rolled out. Uh, it had some bumps, and, but, you know, it seems to be rolling along there now. Uh, and that's certainly reassuring, I'm sure, to residents and to staff members. What's the morale like now? The, the vaccine's given everybody hope. Uh, I can say there's a big sigh of relief. Uh, you know, we're seeing uh, fewer, fewer losses in long-term care. We've had a, last week we had a five-day stretch where, 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 where for, fortunately and thankfully nobody passed away. So it gives us hope, but there's still apprehension. There's still anxiety about a third wave. Uh, we know that the vaccine's not 100% effective, but I think there's, 
gratitude that we were prioritized in long-term care. Uh, but uh, but there's still there's still anxiety and exhaustion and you know. But we, I think we're hopeful as we pivot towards recovery in, in our homes uh, and renewal in our homes uh, that you know we can use this moment uh, to to really. Change, make the changes that we know we have to make, and uh, hold our our leaders accountable. Uh, you know, this is this has been uh, a relentless year, and uh, you know, and who knew that we wouldn't have the, that we'd have the vaccines today uh, when they never existed before. So I think there's exactly there's hope. Uh, well, we'll stay with you and talk with you as that process unfolds over the next little while. Donna, thanks so much for the time today. Stay well, and we'll talk again soon. Great, thanks, Bill. Keep well. You too. Donna Duncan, CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We were talking about Joe Biden a couple of minutes ago, and uh, the, the difference, obviously, between he and Donald Trump is, is clearly obvious to, to most people. Uh, but there's a technique and, and a, a different attitude, I think, uh, towards uh, Biden and, uh, and a lot of the people that uh, and countries that, uh, that look to the United States for leadership and partnership in so many different things. And one of those, of course, uh, had to do with the vaccine program. And uh, interestingly, that uh, you know, uh, the commitment here from the U.S. government is look at everybody in the United States who wants a vaccination is going to get one. Then we'll start talking about other countries. Uh, and Mexico and Canada apparently have put in requests. Uh, the press secretary Jen Psaki actually said that, uh, yeah, we're talking, but didn't make any commitment to it. Uh, but at least those discussions are ongoing. But I want I want to talk about the, the approach Biden is taking and the impact it's having uh, to try to, as he says, rebuild some of those relationships with uh, America's friends. Uh, welcome uh, back to the program, Elliot Tepper, to do this. Elliot, of course, is a professor emeritus of political science at Carleton University, focusing on uh, United States politics. Uh, Elliot, great to have you back in the program. Hope you're doing well these days. I am. Thanks, Bill. How, how are you? Excellent. Excellent. Uh, you know, we're doing the one-year anniversary of working from home, but we're all in the same boat, I guess. But it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, become, the, it's become the new normal. The dogs that used to have me around here now, so I think we're okay. Uh, <laughs> I want to talk about the vaccine thing in a second, but more, a more breaking story that I wanted to get your read on, too. Uh, a lot of the flack that, uh, that Biden is getting uh, from some circles, especially around Moscow, uh, for characterizing Vladimir Putin as a killer, uh, which is a marked difference, of course, from the attitude that Donald Trump took uh, towards Mr. Putin. Uh, your thoughts on that? He hasn't said it lately. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's important. Uh, yes, he certainly has taken a... Um, a different approach, uh, some would say a more clear-eyed approach about the role of Russia and its engagement in the world and certainly its engagement in domestic U.S. politics. Uh, he has reason to be concerned because it's now coming out that while uh, a lot of concern was raised whether the Russians would interfere in the last election, no, apparently they were just doing cyber-hacking while we were <laughs> worrying about the election. Uh, they cyber-hacked America in a very massive way. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it now turns out, uh, no, they were also at the same time still interfering on behalf of Donald Trump. This is this is from official circles in Washington. Uh, They were interfering, got right into Donald Trump's inner circle. They were also trying to create divisions within America uh, over the various uh, many issues that are there. They were just trying to undermine democracy. But uh, they've also, of course, been playing a role in the world that uh, leads people like uh, candidate candidate Joe Biden to call them killers, I think he was probably referring at that point to, uh, to the situation of the poisoning of the Shreepals, the, the use of, of Novichok to kill opponents or attempt to kill opponents around the world. Is he drawing a line here, though? I mean, I understand that wasn't recent, but I mean, it's it's come back now, and obviously, uh, Putin's already responded to it as as late as yesterday, uh, of course, throwing it back at the states and say, "Well, look at this country, you know, the Black Lives Matter and everything. These guys get your own act together before you start making criticisms." But yeah. but, but it's it's a marked difference. I mean, obviously, we know about the relationship, or at least we have a pretty good idea the relationship between Trump and Putin. But even previous to that, uh, with the Obama administration, and to a certain extent, the Bush administration they knew who they were dealing with uh but there was rarely confrontation about that i mean there was always trepidation but not necessarily confrontation uh, is biden taking a different tact we'll have to see how it continues to evolve remember that secretary of state hillary clinton in the obama biden administration brought out a great big red button that said reset they wanting to reset relations between the u.s and russia russia exists as a power uh, there are many uh, areas where the U.S. 
not only needs to uh, work with them, but wants to work with the with an adversary, including Russia. But there's uh, there's clearly going to be, I think, a tougher stance taken and a more consistent policy regarding how to deal with Russia coming out of the Biden administration than the totally inexplicable relationship between Donald Trump and, and Putin. You and I have talked about that over the years mm-hmm. uh, and the fact that Donald Trump, you know, did they have something on him? Well, yes, they did, but that, you know, oh, not really. And there were commercial interests there. He really wanted to have a Trump Tower. You know, Trump was going to build a tower, and he was going to give Putin the top floor, et cetera, et cetera. Those kinds of concerns are gone. How to deal with a, a resurgent Russia that is willing to use force in Syria, willing to, willing to really put itself out, even though they have a weak hand to play. Russia is not a strong power in objective measures, but they use their power very skillfully under Putin. Uh, we have the Navalny situation now, which Americans and around the world, but Americans care about the fact that Navalny, the opposition leader, has you know been poisoned and almost died from that. So I think the possibility does exist that the Biden administration may not call this time out loud Putin a killer. They will see him with in a very clear-eyed fashion, and I suspect you will see some countermeasures against uh, cyber hacking pushing back, but remember, you also need them for things like signing on to the New START agreement, which the two of them mm-hmm. did, for nuclear containment and missile, uh, looking after the missiles and so forth. So there are areas where there will be cooperation, but there's also, I think, going to be a much more consistent line about pushing back against egregious behavior. What are you hearing about what's happening in Russia, Elliot? Because uh, we're hearing stories once again uh, that, that, that Putin is, well, not the beloved leader that that he would have us believe uh things are not going well that we're told with the russian economy the, the sanctions that, that are in place there i guess are are really racking havoc with a lot of people uh and and there's some concern not not necessarily that he's going to get booted out of office but it, when leaders find themselves in precarious positions like that they tend to go outwards and say all right i have to show you how strong i am i.e syria and some other places like that is is he is he trying to do that in other words deflect the attention away from what is happening at home uh for the russian people to show how strong he is as a leader he has actually faced serious opposition at home now through the nationwide remember that's a very big country bigger than canada uh by far uh, all across the country there were protests in the streets that went on and on and on about putin directly against putin led by navalny over the issue of corruption over the issue of this is a government which is only operating as an oligarchy so they those were, I think, worrying, uh, definitely worrying to Putin because he has seen these kinds of uh, revolutions from the street take effect in other places. We're, we're at the 10th anniversary of the Arab Spring where that kind of movement really toppled dictators. So I do think he's concerned, but I don't think he's worried. He has so much control over every aspect of Russian life now that with Navalny in jail, and uh, all these protests temporarily suspended, I think we shouldn't worry about him becoming more erratic. We should worry about him proceeding as he has been doing, systematically trying to reassert Russia as a revanchist power, or the, the return of Russia to greatness, and using uh, various inimical <laughs> techniques to do so. But the, the dynamic has changed in Russia. I mean, you know, as we were watching, you know, the, the behind the Iron Curtain back in the 60s, uh, you know, we, we knew we didn't know anything about the political situation. We knew there was a Politburo there, and uh, and there would be a change in government just announced one day. Uh, you know, Khrushchev is out and Brezhnev is in and stuff like that. Yes. The Politburo has decided. The oligarchs are running the country now, though, aren't they? And and, and Putin really serves at, at their pleasure, doesn't he? Well, it's it's a symbiotic relationship. The pressure being put on Putin is the targeted sanctions under the under the Magnitsky Act, yeah. which are specifically designed to squeeze the people around Putin in order to squeeze Putin. He sees that. We all know the name of the game. However, uh, Putin has demonstrated in a very dramatic fashion what happens to oligarchs who also defect. An oligarch who defects will end up, uh, you know naked in jail, dying on the floor in the middle of the night. It is very, very risky to defect from the circle 
of the of the kind of power that now exists, the symbiotic relationship between those in power, those who are making money, those who have access to all kinds of resources because of the of the Putin um, control over the economy and basically over the country. You talked about, obviously, the, the United States is going to have to deal with Russia uh, when it comes to treaties and things of this nature. Uh, do you put a carrot out there, too, or is it just the stick? You've got to kind of, guys have to come to the table here. I mean, I mean, Trump wanted to go to the extreme and have them back as part of the G8 uh, and, the, and subsequently the G20, of course. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. But do you hold out an olive branch and offer them something in return to try to bridge that gap, or do you just figure, you know, never the twain shall meet? No, I think you'll find a very sophisticated foreign policy apparatus under Joe Biden and uh, Tony Blinken and, and Kerry. You, you will find a very sophisticated use of American foreign power that will include how to deal with Russia, how to deal with China. And that's, of course, a bigger question at the minute. How do you deal with China? Because the Trump policy had this going for it, but that against it. It's a very complicated situation when you have a, a Xi Jinping to deal with. The sophistication of the foreign policy apparatus that's being developed by the Biden administration is very impressive. That will include Russia. But also keep in mind that Russia is playing a weak hand very well. America has, is also weakened. It has a domestic internal situation which is a severe constraint on how the Biden administration can move going forward. They have to deal with the COVID crisis. They have to deal with a Republican Party that is just obstructionist uh, in, in every possible way. The domestic internal situation of America will so preoccupy the Biden administration that its very sophisticated and effective foreign policy capacities are likely to be constrained. It's going to be interesting to see just how that rolls out. Uh, by the way, I'm glad you mentioned John Kerry. I wanted to ask you about him anyway. Uh, his, his official role in the Biden administration, of course, uh, is the environmental guru, and, yeah. and he's well-suited for that. Uh, but with his foreign experience, uh, and especially as Secretary of State, you've got to figure that he's at the table there, too. Yes. I've been saying, really, there's five secretaries of state in America, starting with Joe Biden himself and John Kerry, who was Secretary of State, but he's also foreign you know, he he was he, he was the party's uh, champion. He he led the party uh, to defeat. But you also, after that, have Samantha Power. And uh, oh yes, uh, there's also uh, Tony Blinken. He he is foreign secretary. He's secretary. Yeah, the current one. Yeah. So, you know, uh, they are rife with talent and capacity and ability. There, uh, Susan Rice as well would be the fifth one. Mm -hmm. But they they are going to be hampered by the fact that the Trump administration hollowed out the capacity of America abroad by hollowing out the, de the, the State Department. A lot of people left. There, were, there was neglect, uh, an extraordinary amount of, um, of the people who were appointed ambassadors. Usually it's a third. It was 44% of basically people who bought ambassadorships. You reward your, your, your donors that way. So the American foreign policy apparatus was so weakened under trump and of course trump's own behavior uh, who you know I, I i like putin xi jinping and, and kim jong-un and i don't like anybody else nato has to be brought back uh, into the into the picture in a much much enhanced way the biden team is working all that there, paris you mentioned Kerry. you know he's in charge of climate there's going to be major pushes on the climate under john Kerry, starting with going back into the into the Paris Accords, but COP2 is coming. And there, there, there's another big climate conference coming. John Kerry is going to be a player. And also the progressive caucus inside the Democratic Party is pressing very hard to now saying, okay, you're delivering with COVID and that wonderful bill, which we do support, the $1.9 trillion, uh, almost $2 trillion. We like that. But what are you going to do tomorrow on climate? That's one of their part of their agenda. The Democratic Party is, and Biden, is very um, um, open to the to the goals of the Progressive Caucus. I think, the, to a surprising degree, this is this is a much more transformative rather than transitional presidency under Joe Biden in the area of climate. Appointing Kerry as as a uh, 
key player. You know, having a czar for climate is already something. But once again, they're going to be very constrained in what they can actually accomplish. Uh, I've got about a minute and a half left here. You mentioned NATO a couple of minutes ago, and obviously there was an acrimonious relationship between Trump and, and the other NATO members. How difficult are, is it going to be to build those bridges, or are they simply going to welcome them back with open arms? Oh, I think more than there's probably weeping with joy behind the scenes <laughs> at the, and the change. Uh, Joe Biden believes in NATO, believes in multilateralism. Joe Biden will uh, do everything he can to see to it. And by the way, uh, Canada has taken part in every single major NATO operation that NATO's ever had. We are major players ourselves within NATO, and we depend on that as part of our multilateral strategic and defensive uh, interest around the world. We are partners in all that. No, the, the return of America to sit at the head of the table, which includes reinvigorating NATO and traditional alliances. Uh, the, I was impressed by the fact that Austin and Blinken are in, are in Asia right now personally. It's not by Zoom. They've gone to Asia to refurbish the alliance and to talk about what to do about China. Uh, they're in, in Japan and South Korea. Uh, they're having a lot of meetings. So, uh, and now there's going to be a meeting, by the way, in Anchorage, of the Biden top team and some Chinese uh, top diplomats, and I, that'll be something out of sight to keep an eye on. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a team that wants to move vigorously to reassert America's role in the world, but that role was severely damaged by Donald Trump's behavior, pulling out, we don't want to lead, and by the lack of capacity either to regain the trust quickly that uh, was squandered, but also just lack of resources because of what has to be done at home in America. Blinken's over there right now talking with Asian leaders. Uh, Very quickly, uh, the two Michaels go to trial, one tomorrow, one on Monday. Uh, Is it too late for the Americans to to intercede here? The Americans, of course, have have it within their power to to end this. Uh, They can simply say, you're holding her because we want her extradited. And uh, they can say, we don't want her extradited anymore. And that ends the case. No, I think the, the, since we have limited time, the only way to end this, and you and I have talked about this over, over the years, you know, they can withdraw the extradition, she can mm. win in court here, uh, or some kind of deal can be made. But ultimately, this is an, a bilateral uh, matter between the U.S. and China. China has said, this is something we really, really, really want. We want Meng Wanzhou back. That's a bargaining card, and I'm afraid our people are caught up in that, even though Biden has said human beings are not bargaining chips. America has to cut a deal as the only certain way to bring the two Michaels home because any other option might leave them in jail no matter what happens in the courts. Yeah, we already know what the verdict's going to be in those trials if they go that far. Oh, uh, never enough time. in the trials. Exactly. Never enough time to cover all the stuff we want to in our conversations. Always uh, grateful for your time. Thanks so much for this today. Yes, Bill, call any time. You betcha. The world keeps turning. You bet it does. Thanks again. Elliot Tepper, of course, uh, Professor Emeritus at Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.